welcome to Modern Day, a podcast that celebrates curiosity as a tool for success. On this podcast, guests discuss what drives their motivation for change, how they've overcome obstacles, and the best lessons they've learned that we can apply to our own lives. This interview-style podcast allows us to ask real people real questions about their career, work hacks, and life. Welcome back to Modern Day. Today, I have Bob Stahl as my guest. Bob spent 12 years in manufacturing, and his company was awarded the Oliver Wright's Class A recognition for supply chain excellence. Since then, Bob has been an independent consultant to many of the world's leading corporations making improvements to their supply chain practices and introducing them to the sales guide and operations planning, a process to help balance demand and supply he is co-author of six books. Bob, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Natalia. Can you give us an introduction to your career in manufacturing, and how did you identify the need for changes in supply chain practices across the industry in general? Sure. I uh, graduated from university in 1966, Uh with a degree in economics, but a major in industrial engineering. But I had a military obligation, and I spent five years in a commissioned uh, Navy. When leaving the Navy, I said, gee, I think I have to uh, find a job in a factory, because that's what my education is. So I went looking, and I found myself uh, a job as an executive trainee with a large corporation, uh, the Continental Can Company, which manufactured all over the country and internationally. I, after that one year, I took a job as a schedules coordinator. Now, in the year I spent uh, on the 33rd floor in, uh, in uh, uh, Manhattan, and I'm in Manhattan, I learned how disconnected the executive people were from what was going on in the plants because they'd send me for that year out to fill in for somebody at vacation doing a scheduling or planning practice in a plant. Then I'd go back to the 33rd floor for a week or so and follow people around. So I learned at the executive side that they were disconnected and really didn't know what was going on in the real world. And when I got to the plant, it was mass confusion. And I, they finally placed me after a year as a schedules coordinator in one of their can plants. And I found that I didn't do either one. I didn't schedule and I didn't coordinate. I just reacted to crises. That's because there was no methodology. It was all launch and expedite product to satisfy customers. And it was a very arduous, very intensive, very stressful exercise. It wasn't very effective. And so as I started to work in the factory, I said, you know, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. This is crazy and there's no way to make a living. So that began my thinking about what I was going to do next. And as I was doing that and researching, I found it was a few people that said, it didn't have to be that way. And that was the beginning of a new mindset, a new thought. So as I worked in that first job, the schedules coordinator in a big can company, I learned that that new way was innovative and it was uh, a, a new approach. And so I said, I'm not going to make a change in that big company because I'm a small fish in a big pond. So I left there to go to a smaller organization of a large corporation, but a small division, a strategic business unit. And with the full intent of trying to figure out how to bring them to state of the art by new methodologies. And that was an opportunity that, uh, that just has made the basis of my career. So I was kind of just lucky being in the right spot at the right time. 
And what I did is I, I worked in that company and I hired this fellow named Oliver White, who was one of the people who uh, was saying it didn't have to be that way. And with his help, we made huge progress and improvements. We improved our return on net investment by uh, 600%. Uh, went from 6% to 48% return on net investment. So uh, the methodologies which we, which we really devised and created worked exceedingly well and got me to the point where I said, I think I'm going to maybe do this for a living. Now, it took me four, uh, about three years with a can company to leave and then about five or six years uh, with the second company to, uh, to get it to a, a class of state. And then I stayed for a few years and I left industry in 1980 to do independent consulting, as you have pointed out, with companies all over the world uh, uh, in every industry on every continent. And it's been just a kick and I've been just very lucky. But I recall one my high school football coach, uh, telling, uh, all of us players that luck was a matter of, uh, when preparation meets opportunity. And he said, it's funny. If you work hard and prepare well, you'll get lucky. And that was the state of my getting into this field and this space. I was kind of lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and worked hard and innovatively to come up with some new ideas. And it gave me some footing and some grounding. Well, that's, that's great. And, and, and I agree with your, your high school coach. It's definitely, you are definitely much luckier once the preparation and, and hard work come into play. I, I feel it very often too, as, as you feel definitely unlucky when all of those, when those two factors are absent. So yes, uh, I agree. Uh, so executive sales and operations is a set of decision-making processes meant to balance supply and demand, but it's actually much more than that. While you're reading the first book, one thing that stood out to me was the transparency between uh, the executive that the SNOP provides, which allows for increased collaboration and relationship growth between colleagues. Mm -hmm. How important is relationship building in, in terms of the objective to, to achieve the, the, the larger objective. Yeah. It's all about uh, building relationships or what I more uh, 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 specifically term aligning human energy. It's, there is a mechanical part of this thing called sales and operations planning, which is the executive's handle on managing the supply chain. There is a mechanical part and it's very data intensive, but that's the easy part. What I like to say is the hard stuff, the mechanics, the techniques, and the data, that's easy. The soft stuff is hard. That's the behavior change. It's learning how to disagree without, dis without uh, being disagreeable. And that was uh, Everett Dirksen, I think, that originally said that. Because if you take a data set or a set of information and put it in front of a bunch of people who come from different disciplines, say operations or manufacturing, sales and marketing, finance, technology, you put that same information in front of them, they're going to see different things because they're looking through different prisms. That disagreement is strength, not weakness. It's reconciling that disagreement that brings about organizational strength. And that's getting people to collaborate, to come to a collaborative consensus about what they're going to do and how they're going to go about it. And it's not in manufacturing a democracy where you take a vote. There is a chain of command, 
But the collaborative consensus building process, and that's what SNOP is, is two parts mechanical, but it's five parts behavior. That's why it's so very difficult to do. And it takes some very special leaders to make it happen inside a corporation because it is a new approach. It's not doing things the way you've always done it. It's doing things differently, behaviorally, to be better. So the behavioral part is the tough part that's tough. The mechanical part, that's pretty straightforward. That's that's a really interesting point um, that the mechanical part is is fairly straightforward in in comparison to the relationship part. I think Mm -hmm. uh, relationship building, though, it seems to be a very soft skill that, you know, most people think comes easily, I I think is actually one of, in my experience, is one of the hardest things that I've ever had to deal with when it comes to stakeholders, when it comes to, you know, internal colleagues is the relationship building and understand, like you said, from their prism, what are they seeing and what is important to them? I, I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, uh, I, uh, you know, reconciling disagreement is the difficult part. It's in, in a, in a manufacturing organization with different disciplines, it's not okay to disagree. It's a requirement that you disagree. That's the way you get the best decisions. I worked for a while with a fellow that is a lawyer, uh, Stuart Levine. Uh, He practiced law for a number of years, but then said, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore because lawyers don't resolve conflict, they create it. And what he said is conflict resolution of a lasting nature has two parts. One is the subject at hand. That's the subject of which you're speaking about and disagreeing. But the second is the baggage or the experiences of the past you bring to that game. Unless you put both parts of that on the table for discussion, that's the, that's the actual disagreement, and that's usually by numbers or by observation. And then the baggage that says, why are you biased in some way? And you must open that up to expose yourself to that vulnerability. And when you reconcile both of those parts, the, uh, the actual subject and the baggage or the behavior behind that position, then you get reconciliation that's very strong and people will work together better than ever before. That That's actually a very interesting perspective. I don't think I've ever really thought of it in that way necessarily, um, especially, you know, when you mentioned the baggage of the subject, you know, there the people's baggage or the reason why they behave and they react in certain ways. And, and that really tells you a lot about the person and about, you know, their, their perspective and their objective and, and whatever the subject is. So it is, it is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I, um, that I really am interested in, in getting some insight to use is regarding the processes. So in previously you, sp- you said that, um, uh, the, the, one of the hardest things to change is somebody's behavior. Um, I think that also is, is, um, goes hand in hand with, um, processes. So there are companies that establish very good processes early on and others, mm-hmm. and I think most, uh, correct me if I'm not wrong, but others grow so quickly that they soon find themselves scrambling to fill all kinds of gaps for the company. Um, and, and for a company that doesn't have, for example, a good ERP system, uh, that is often mentioned in your book, uh, in a place that it's maybe working a bit more on the startup side than on the enterprise side, Mm -hmm. can you apply executive SNOP the same way or does it need to be modified? Yeah. A couple of aspects of that question. And there's several questions in there. Uh, 
Um, the first one is that I have never seen two companies apply the principles, practices, and disciplines of SNOP in exactly the same way, because every company is a little different. It's a set of, 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 uh, of procedures. It's a set of mindset. It's a set of practices. It's a set of methodology. But the, the application will vary company to company greatly, uh, not because of the product, but because of the organization's mindset and behavior. And, and it is a process that brings people together so that they can collaborate and gain that, that executive consensus that's so necessary. Now, most people, the second part in that question is that come to this process, they do it because of either some present pain or some perceived future pain. In other words, we have too much inventory or too little customer service or like most companies, both. Most companies that have one of those have the other at the same time. They have too much inventory and not enough customer service. It's because they're not building the right stuff. They're building play of stuff, but not the right stuff. So that they usually come at it from an aspect that says, we've been doing business this way, but it ain't working very well. Therefore, we need to change the way we do something. We need a new approach. And they embrace the embodiment. One of the first books we ever wrote after we got the new mindset uh, was useful was the Executive Guide. It's a 96-page book that uh, any executive can read on one leg of a plane flight, which talks about the principles and concepts of this practice and how it's different than common practice to get more to get quantum improvements quickly in how a company performs. And so lots of companies, I'd say most companies by the large majority, come to it because they have a problem they want to solve, but they come to it after they've said we have to have a new mindset to change the way we've done things because we're going to do things differently to be better. Now, there are some companies that are perceptive enough, and usually it's because the founders, a brand new company as you speak, the founders have been part of their experience working for large corporations or a corporation, and they view SNOP successfully. So they say, as we build and start up this new company, we need to bring this in with the bricks and mortar, so to speak. I worked with one company in Chicago called Elevance, which was a chemical company made out of all natural products, uh, all organic. And they, they, they brought in SNOP before they ever produced a product of any sort. And that's because the principals that founded the company had it in their bag of tricks to begin with. And they taught the organization what it was going to be like when they started to produce and the methodologies they developed along the way. So you can do it in any industry, big or small. You can do it as a startup or you can do it as a remedial activity to say we need to do something different to be better. It's a set of principles and practices, concepts that, that are fundamental to every organization making and delivering a product to customers, whether you're just starting whether you're very mature, whether you're big, whether you're small, no matter what the product. And does this have to be specifically in manufacturing or could it be a uh, product in terms of service mm -hmm. instead? Um, is it, does it sort of translate between the type of product that you're, you're providing? Great question. I've, uh, I'd say the large majority of companies that do SNOP are manufacturing. They make a product and deliver a product. But a service can also be a product, and that's called soft resources. For example, in manufacturing, how many pieces of equipment do I need? Machinery, skills and people and buildings and factory. If you're in a bank, 
for example, they have demand and supply. Demand are people who want loans to borrow money. Supply, is, or the soft side of supply, are those people that are processing the loans. If your business is going to grow, you have to get more processors. You have to get more skill sets. But there is no hard goods. There is no necessarily equipment. So balancing demand and supply in a soft industry, a service industry, the concept is exactly the same. But for whatever reason, most of the people that have done it have done it in manufacturing, but a few are doing it uh, in service industries. I've worked with several, uh, but predominantly it's in manufacturing, but it's any place there's a demand and supply. An airline, for example, could use SNOP. Uh, you know, their, their demand of people who want to travel, go from here to there. The supply is how many airplane seats do I need? And right. how many airplanes and how many people to service those airplanes, et cetera. Right. So it is it is applicable in, in multiple industries. So that's, that's very good as well to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so how have you learned to work with executives? Mm-hmm. I would think that there are many more that are hesitant to try something new. Sure. And how would you sell executive and SNOP to them? Yep. Yeah. If you if you were somebody like that would like to present this to their executive, how would how would you recommend going about it? Sure. Uh, if you take the organization of anything and put it on paper, you get a triangle. You know, skinny at the top, wide at the bottom, right? The people who are most difficult to accept change of substantive size are the people on the top. Why? because they've been doing things the way they've done them for their whole career. And because they've achieved that success, they not only perceive themselves, but have been highly successful. So you come along and you say, well, there's a new approach. You're going to have to do things differently than you've done your whole career. And they say, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to do that. And what we call that, what I call that is the catch 22 of implementation. And I've written some columns on that. Uh, But the catch-22 is that it's very difficult to convince the top of the pyramid, the leaders of the organization, that uh, they need to do things a different way than they've been doing them their whole career. However, if you say we'll do it without them, you're missing the people that are necessary to make the behavior change. And therefore, you won't be successful. So the catch-22 is says if you include them, it's difficult to convince them. And if you don't include them, it's difficult to be successful. And so how do you convince them is the question. That's why we wrote the executive's guide. If I get a cold call from somebody in the middle of an organization, middle manager, and says, I've read this stuff and I think we need to do SNOP and here's why. And they give me the background. I say, sounds like it might be a good idea. However, you need to find an executive champion. And the way you find an executive champion, that's why we wrote the executive's guide, is take the executive guide and give it to each of the top executives, typically with titles of vice president, vice president of operations, vice president of procurement, vice president of uh, sales and marketing, vice president of finance. Give that, that 96 page book to each of those four or five people and say, you'd like to talk to them about doing that process and adapting it to your circumstance so you can do things differently to be better. And then wait for a knock on your door. The first one to show up is the one that you might call the executive champion. 
three out of four will probably read it and say, nah, not for me. It's too risky. See, leaders like to avoid risk, mitigate, minus, minimize risk. Well, doing things differently is risky, but there's an approach that's low risk, and that's the implementation approach, which you might ask about. But, but you, what you need is an executive champion right from the get-go. And the way you get one is, is take five or six of the executive leaders and give them a glimpse of what this is all about and see which one shows up. If nobody shows up, you don't have a good circumstance. You don't try unless you have an executive leader, an executive champion. And uh, that executive champion is the one that becomes a kindred spirit, I call it. He then learns what it is that's going to be different about this and how to make it successful without risk, without risk of change. And that executive champion becomes a key in the path forward. And so what you do is you try and let the executive champion become self-serving by giving them a little bit to read and see if they get excited. And if they do, you've found an executive champion. If not, wait until you have one. It's like, okay. like the old American Express ad, don't leave home without it. Mm-hmm. Don't try to implement this without an executive leader. Okay. So if you, for example, have a, um, uh, you're going to, you have an organization that does not yet have an ERP system Mm -hmm. and, you know, going back to your point on implementation and they are going to be implementing, integrating with a new ERP system, do you recommend um, beginning or at least, you know, discovering the executive SNOP before or after the ERP has been implemented? Does, does ERP necessarily have uh, a big effect on it? Or, you know, should you plan before or after? Yes. Now you've used the term ERP, that's Enterprise Resource Planning. That was originally a set of concepts and principles. SNOP mm-hmm. was a part of it. But it got hijacked, that term, by software companies. Today, not okay. Natalia, people who say we're doing ERP are doing software to help manage the mixed space or the short-term scheduling. SNOP is the planning. It's not doing. It's preparing or planning or setting conditions for success. It's the executive function. The ER part of ERP that deals with that mixed space, the detailed scheduling, is what people call ERP today, although that was not the initial intent. Now, lots of people have ERP systems, you almost have to, to keep track of all the data, invoicing, tie things together, all the detail. SNOP is not that detail. It's very different. SNOP is where you said policy, strategy, risk, and fiduciary responsibilities. It's not scheduling the short term. Scheduling follows the setting of conditions for success by SNOP. If somebody already has an ERP system, They've heard of SNOP, but are probably not doing it authentically. Lots of people talk the words, but don't understand nor have the process. The process is highly uh, misunderstood. And even if a company is operating with ERP, they might not have an authentic uh, SNOP process. Tom Wallace, my writing partner, and I, when the terms began to morph and blend ERP and SNOP, we put a little small E on the front of SNOP and said it's the executive part of managing the supply chain, executive SNOP. It's not part of the term, 
but it's the executive component to managing the supply chain. And that's different than ERP. Now, whether you do or don't have ERP, it doesn't matter. But if you have neither, the place to start is with SNOP. The way I put it is if you don't get in the right church, you'll never get in the right pew. SNOP puts you in the right church. ERP puts you in the right pew. You got to get the big picture before you get the small picture within it. If you got the small okay. picture for the short term, that doesn't mean you have a process that can look at the long term and, and the ever unchanging, the uncertain world we're living in today for sure. So ERP is part of and connected to, but it's very different from, even though that was not the original intent of the name. Okay. That's very interesting to know. Um, so what about the implementation side of, of executive SNOP? How, um, how long does it necessarily take to implement this? Is this something that it depends on the, the, the environment of the company, the industry, the size of the company? Or is it something that's multiple factors? Or is it something that you have seen in your career that is, is so, sort of seamlessly integrates, you know, once it's been accepted uh, by management? Yes, SNOP primarily balances demand and supply at the aggregate or family big picture level. It also fully integrates with the financial mechanisms for all the fiduciary responsibility, budgeting and forecasting, and all that sort of thing. It third, it provides a forum for setting effective policy strategy and such to run the business by. Uh, and, and so it does a multitude of things. Now, when you say we're talking about a big corporation, this process applies to the strategic business units, commonly called SBUs within it. A big company, for example, say Clorox, so they did a lot of work with their Dow Chemical, they did a lot of work with their, the Jordan brands, that they did a lot of work with billions and billions of dollars, but they break themselves into strategic business units. SNOP applies to strategic business units. Each one has an SNOP process that when put together, that adds up to the corporate picture but you must operate and implement as its strategic business level. So a small company or medium-sized company and a big company really from an implementation standpoint are the same because you got to do it one little piece at a time, one SBU at a time. And if a small company, you could have only one SBU. Uh, I'm working now virtually with a company that's all over the world, but they have multiple entities, uh, one for North America and one for the rest of the world because it's two different practices. Now, because SNOP changes behavior and experience, it's uncomfortable. Discomfort translates to risk. Risk translates, I don't want to do that. So yeah, the implementation methodology must mitigate that risk to become attractive. The first thing you do is you get an executive champion who's attracted to the subject, just in general. And that person says, I understand the concept and principle, but boy, how are we going to do that here? The answer is in a low-risk methodology that starts with a pilot demonstration. You can read, you can talk, you can listen, you can learn. It's, you won't understand it until you ride it. It's like a bicycle. You can't learn how to ride a bicycle by reading a book. You got to get out and ride it. But you don't ride it on hard pavement. You ride it on grass because you're going to fall down. You learn from doing. Same here. The pilot approach of implementation says you take the SVU in which you want to do uh, executive SNOP and you pick a small product line that's demonstrative 
and you go through all of the elements of the mechanics and the people to put together the collaborative consensus building mindset. That pilot is in full parallel with running the business the way you run it today. So there's zero risk. There's just an investment of time. There's no software to buy. There's no mechanics. There's no hardware, no nothing. You just have to put the process in place, but you do it in full parallel and you demonstrate that what we call the design team who puts that together, demonstrates how it's going to work in a company to the executive leadership. Now, once they see it demonstrated, that mitigates the risk on their part because now it's being worked at in a demonstrative way, which says that makes sense. Now let's start implementing in the real world. How long does that take? Three months to put together a demonstrative pilot. Once you put together a demonstrative pilot, depends on how big and broad in a single site company, it takes maybe another three or four months. In a big company that's all over the world with 10 SBUs, 10 SNOP processes, it may take them a couple of years to go through each of those uh, SBUs. So it's a low risk methodology because you must mitigate the risk for the leaders who must immerse themselves in leading that behavior change. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Thank you. Um, so you've, you've explained so much about SNOP and, and piqued my interest once again, even though I've, I've read the books. Um, and I think that there's so much more to learn and I'm, I'm always excited to share it. But before we are, um, before we wrap up completely, is there anything that you would like to share with the audience about SNOP or about your career and experience uh, before we wrap up? Mm -hmm. Um, I started my career and, and I, I've been asked to do lecturing at universities and colleges. And I found out early on that when you go to a college campus and talk to students, there's one thing that's primary above all else is how do I find a job? And so I'd go in, uh, in my early times of doing that. I talked about the subject of what I deal in. They couldn't be less interested, but they said, how do I find a job? And so what I address to them is what I'd recommend for everybody listening to this and all is that don't go out looking for a job, even if you're employed. Go out looking for something that can make a difference that you enjoy doing. And if you enjoy doing it, you'll do it better than anybody's done it before. And that will make you what you want to do. And you'll make a lot of money. Those that set out and say, I'm going to go get make a lot of money usually don't. Those that say, I'm going to make a difference usually make a lot of money. So I'd say that if you're in industry and listening to this and say, we don't have an effective executive process for managing the supply chain in the aggregate fashion, then get yourself up that learning curve, get equipped, prepare, get ready, get a passion for this business. What I did when I got into this space, that was a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum is I developed a mindset with a mission that said, I want to try and help manufacturing companies become competitive in this, in this country, become competitive with anybody in the world. That was my passion. My purpose was to help people learn this process. If somebody's listening to this and they are in a company that doesn't have SNOP, learn as much as you can about it and go looking for an executive champion as you learn to share that with. And then start a process by that executive champion saying, Let's try and put something together, get to a live pilot development and the resources necessary at no risk 
to try and get this process started in our company. Get yourself up the learning curve. Try and grab an executive if you're not one and get them up the learning curve to get some enthusiasm for the mission. I like to say those companies that do this well, they align human energy like never before. And when you take the human energy in a company and align it, they can do things not before possible. It's amazing what companies, what people can do if they are all in agreement and align overcoming disagreement and non-resolution. You get that energy alignment and man, you can do anything and it becomes fun, not easy. It's hard work, but it becomes fun. And, and the mission is part of that is we're going to learn how to become competitive with anybody in the world. Wow. That's, that's very strong. That's, I'm now very excited to go take this um, a bit further. So thank you for, for joining me today. And thank you for sharing everything about your career and executive SNOP and, and to answer all of my questions. I was actually, when I was read, reading everything, I was writing it all down and, and I was really excited to ask you and, and to learn more about it. So thank you very, very much for, for sharing everything today and for joining me. Yeah, One thing you might share is I have a website that's filled with uh, columns I've written with, I write a three or four times a year a newsletter, short pieces, three paragraph kind of pieces that address things. There's a wealth of information out there, and it's for anybody and everybody to just go use, download, and 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 help to get people inside an organization attracted to this subject. So please uh, use that as a resource. It's there for your use. Yes, and and if anybody is interested in learning more about SNOP, uh, ESNOP. Um, I highly, highly recommend picking up a copy of Sales and Operations Planning, The Executive's Guide. Uh, like Bob said, it's a quick 96-page book that uh, really just in, it sort of piques your interest into it, and, and you really are left wanting to learn a lot more and, and, and get excited about possibly in, implementing it at your organization. So I highly recommend it. Um, it's a beautiful, wonderful, easy introduction to the method, um, but all of his books are available today for purchase on Amazon. And if you're interested in learning more, you can also visit Bob's re- website at um, rastallcompany.com. And like uh, Bob said, he's got a lot of newsletters and um, pieces that he's wrote, written. So um, great resource altogether. So thank you very much for joining me today. Mm-hmm. 